0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at The Washington Post. Thank you all for joining us here today at the Rockefeller Foundation. And thank you also to those watching online, who I'm assuming are right there. Uh, we kick off This Is Climate, Women Leading the Charge with the current USA USAID Administrator, and the former United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Samantha Power. Administrator Power, welcome.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: Um, Let's start big picture. How and in what ways are women disproportionately impacted by climate change?
2: Well, first, let me thank those of you who are putting on uh, this event and just say this is my uh, uh, 10th UNGA. It's my 10th? No, my 11th UNGA. 10th UNGA. Um, And uh, this is the first time I've been at an event like this, which is just taking head on um, a major source of many problems and a major necessity in terms of solutions. So I'd say first, women are, as all marginalized persons, all vulnerable populations, tend to be disproportionately affected by climate change. We see it in um, minority communities uh, in this country over and over again. We see it all around the world uh, playing out. Um, if you look at actual casualty rates or death rates in natural national natural emergencies, you see women and children bearing the brunt. Um, and you might think, oh, well, that's a biological difference, and maybe they can't outrun the uh, tidal waves or whatever. But it's, it's much about gender norms and be, feeling like you need permission in order to know whether you can leave and being trapped in homes. Um, it's, uh, you know, in general just actually being responsible for so much in terms of the family's welfare um, and, you know, not being in a position, uh, again, to put one's own well, welfare uh, very prominently. Um, you see it day to day, the vulnerabilities, you know, as water dries up. And, you know, I've just been to so many places, I'm sure many of you have as well, where it is just so stark, even from year to year how different the landscapes are from the ones just 10 years ago. But one thing hasn't changed that much, which is the norm that it is women who go collect the water in rural communities. So as water dries up near the community, women have to walk further and further. uh, And that's, of course, been a uh, terrible um, means by which or or route by which uh, women have been continually subjected to gender-based violence en route. So the further you go... The less protection you have, the more that those other norms that don't, on their face, seem to have that much to do with climate change per se—a norm that indicates it's okay to uh, assault or or attack a, a, a woman—that norm then intersects and thus, you know, means a disparate impact again on, on on women in that sector as well.
1: So, where where in the world are these issues most acute?
2: Well, it's hard to choose. I, I've, I'll i give you just a little bit of a brief tour of my r- recent horizon or whatever the backward version of a horizon is. You know, over the last year, uh, I traveled to Pakistan when a third of the country was underwater because of a combination of unprecedented rains and melting glaciers colliding at once and inadequate preparation and infrastructure. Um, and again, it's women often the last to stay, uh, to protect, uh, property or to protect, uh, livestock as men go in search of help. I mean, everybody's, um, affected in terrible ways. Traveling from there then, uh, to Northern Kenya and to Somalia to see five straight failed rainy seasons. So the complete opposite of what I had seen in Pakistan, which is just parched land, um, Millions of livestock uh, died uh, of the drought uh, in the Horn of Africa. Uh, you might think, well, the main effect would be on the pastoralists, which, of course, the people who ra- the, raised the, the, uh, the livestock, and sure, you actually saw a big spike in suicides of these men because they, for millennia, had been raising animals, and suddenly their entire herds of goats or camels wipe- wiped out just like that. Um, But when it comes to managing the effects on families and the severe acute malnutrition that young people were left with, particularly kids under five, it was women who had to both deal with despondent husbands, deal with the question of what becomes of sons who had imagined that lifestyle continuing and now had suddenly thinking, how do I possibly give them an alternative life, an alternative vocation, um, but then also, you know, being in a position to to try to find food for, for the youngest. So, I mean, again, it hits in different places. I was just, last one I'd offer you was just in Fiji. And of course, for all the Pacific Islands, it's, uh, or almost all of them, it's an existential threat. It's about whole nationalities having to figure out in some number of years ahead where they move to, what they do, like if they can't Live in the in the, the parts of the country and the or in the the particular islands that are so uh, low low lying, and um, just small examples with where women out there growing industry in this instance met with a women a group of women who were growing sea grapes, uh, which are, by the way are delicious. I'd never had sea grapes before, um, and they were so proud of their sea grapes. And you know, USAID is trying to support them, get a micro uh, loan so that they can build their business, grow their business. But just incidentally, and this is where, you know, climate change just comes up at every turn. They say, well, the only problem these days is we now have to take our boats further and further out because as the ocean warms, it warms particularly close to the shore. So we have to go further. So we go further to get our sea grapes. That means much longer away from all the other obligations we have as women in the household. Moreover, we use fuel powered boats so we're putting more emissions out into the air as we go and try to retrieve these sea grapes in order to grow our businesses. So, you know, again, every, everywhere you look, Pacific Islands, Africa, uh, Asia, you know, it's, it's walloping communities.
1: I, and I want to get to, you mentioned microloans, and I want to get to um, the, the aid that USAID, um, USAID gives. But are these issues that you were, we were just talking about, that's a lot of the developing world, but is what we're talking about confined to the developing world?
2: No, hardly, but I just happen That's to... That's called a
1: leading question. <laughs> <laughs>
2: we live, I mean, we're, I think, on our 23rd uh, natural disaster here in that, that has cost over a billion dollars in the U.S. right now. Uh, we've experienced our hottest day, week, and month on record, I think, just in the last couple months. Um, for the first time, we had to shut down certain businesses and summer camps and uh, opportunities for young people because of wildfire smoke uh, extending uh, into our lives. And um, again, the disparate impacts, you know, this is maybe a small example, but when a kid can't go to camp, it's gonna be the working mom in most households certainly mine, uh, that is gonna have to figure out what, you know, it's like a, a version of what happened with COVID. Um, you know, when uh, climate hits, whether in small and fleeting ways that, that have severe health impacts and severe uh, lifestyle impacts, it is going to fall to the multitaskers uh, of the home uh, to manage that. But I mean, the, the also just the financial effects of the damage now being done on what feels like a near daily basis to some part of the United States Uh, can't be overstated. It happens just not to be what USAID works on because we do our work uh, overseas. And, And our work, I will say one of the biggest tensions and challenges that we grapple with is we're given Fixed resources and not resources that are not keeping up at all with uh, the development setbacks that climate change is causing at all, at all. Even though they're growing, our resources are growing, but you just you can't keep up. But the other problem is not just that; it's that so much of our resources go to keeping people alive in emergency circumstances, like those in Libya just over the last week, uh, or those I mentioned in Pakistan or Somalia. And what you wouldn't do to be taking all of that humanitarian assistance and investing it instead in disaster resilient infrastructure or in drought resistant seeds or in those microloans, uh, you know, to small farmers who are actually capable of using their smartphone to anticipate extreme weather events and at least mitigate what those losses are. So that what I've described is kind of the difference between resilience. Uh, and emergency you know, relief. And, and we are very weighted as a, as a government and as a donor community writ large toward, I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful privilege to try to help people get through the worst moments of their lives. But uh, in doing it that way, which is quite stopgap,
3: you know that
2: you're gonna be back at it. And, and that is you know extra heartbreaking. Because it used to say, we'd say climate shock, But now it's kind of like, is it a shock when it is a predictable feature of, um, you know, a particular part of a country's um, farming life? Um, And and so what does that require of us? If the pie were bigger, we would dramatically increase our investments in resilience, which is what we should be doing. Uh, It's hard to not save lives in the interest of saving lives in the longer term. So we are we are balancing this as best we can. But it is it's
1: not a fun balancing act. You anticipated the question I was going to ask, jumping off the microloans piece. So I'm going to jump ahead. Um, The relationship between economic development and and climate change, how closely linked are these issues and how is uh, USAID addressing them both at the same time?
2: Well, I mean, I'd say we are... In or we are moving toward, let me say, because we have a long way to go, um, embedding attention to climate change as a design feature of all of our work. So, one sort of structural, maybe wonky example of this is that we have taken our food security and resilience bureau and merged it with our climate uh, team and and so that is where but the nexus there is quite obvious to people it's not a perfect overlap but but there's tons to be agriculture is a major source of emissions so uh, those emissions need to come down um and of course climate smart agriculture is going to be the way that we preserve food security or increase it in the years ahead so that's one merger but in terms of education it's the number one i mean all of us any of us who have kids it's the number one thing kids want to know about is is not only what's going to happen to uh, to the world that I know, but also what can I do about it? Um, so even thinking about education in governance, it is so fundamentally destabilizing for governments that can't keep up with climate change, whether on the resilient side or on the emergency side, because it compounds this loss of trust in institutions that we see in so many parts of the world. That's not just about You know the export of surveillance technologies, you know, from the PRC or, um, you know, democratic democracies being under attack by other other means. There's also just things that are happening in the world that, when a government can't keep up, it compounds that cynicism about institutions. So uh, this is a long way of saying we do governance work at USAID, we do education, we do public health. That's completely connected to climate, as you look at changing malaria patterns. The WHO, I think, is is predicting an additional 250 thousand people who will have died by by 2030 of climate related, whether it's you know heat stress or or malaria, uh, or water shortages, malnutrition that grows out of it. So, what we where we need to get as an agency is to embed uh, attention to resilience and attention to climate change and what it means for a community in everything we do. And and you know. I, in a sense, USAID is a climate agency. Even if we still have a climate team that works, you know, as a climate team per se, mainstreaming this agenda is what our missions are trying to do uh, all around the world. And this is not because I, I anticipate the, you know, the concerns of some maybe in our in our domestic politics on this. And I'm sure you'll get there. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, this isn't USAID foisting anything. This is the creed corps core you know heard all around the world of this is a game changer our development trajectories were going here covid hit and now we have what could feel like a covid like not not of the same scale but battering again and again and again so just as we're now thinking differently about pandemic prevention what should that lead us to think about when it when it comes to embedding climate in the mindset of all public spending and, and all notions of mobilizing, mobilizing private capital, because that's, of course, gonna be a big part of the solution. So we're tra- that's, it's this mainstreaming and not having climate live over here, but given that it is this game changer and given the, that it's the, our host countries and the communities in which we work, and have worked since John F. Kennedy pleading, you know, give us more of the tools to adapt to this shell-shocking phenomenon.
1: Well, I asked the question about economic development because, you know, with economic development comes, you know, perhaps um, better lives, better living conditions, which then can exacerbate um, the the issues related to climate change. So how do you in, um, and I wrote it down really fast, the mainstreaming, how in mainstreaming climate in, in the things that you do, how do you find that balance between um, helping people help themselves while at the same time not doing it in a way that exacerbate the climate problems that we all have to face.
2: Yeah, and I mean, I think I think you're, you know, one example that I think that you're alluding to is, you know, as people get richer, they they buy more meat and right. that causes, you know, more emissions or they travel more, they're flying more they're, and you're, you, absolutely, I mean, we've seen that that's The emissions trajectory in both the PRC and India are reflected of that. Our emissions trajectory, you know, back as we were um, bringing our economy online and modernizing it absolutely reflects that. So I think that is profound. I will say the fact that solar power, um, the cost of solar has come down by 85%. uh, The cost of wind is down by 55%. um, Where we work... Uh, the demand signal for renewables is very, very significant, which doesn't get at mediating and some of the other features of um, getting wealthier, um, but it does get to the urgency of making clean energy transitions as these prices come down. It is a better bet, and so, so again, when we have these exchanges on the Hill, and it look, you know, it looks to some who are skeptical somehow still of, of climate programming you know, that we're bringing our green agenda to the countries and the communities we're working in. No, it's not like that at all. They're saying we can't afford this other thing, you know, but actually we can pop up a solar panel and have a, a water pump that we've been trying to get in this village. We can go off-grid in ways we we never, well, the state's not going to get here anytime soon. This was my experience out in uh, Bekaa Valley in, in Lebanon where USAID worked to, to, you know, build a... Um, a bunch of solar panels that powered electricity and, and and ended up actually reducing tension between refugees who were being generously sheltered by Lebanese host communities, Syrian refugees, and the Lebanese because they were no longer fighting over water because they had water because they had solar. But to attach to the, the grid, no way. And So then those tensions, who knows what would happen with that? So the idea that these investments are cost-effective over time, that actually you can... Develop in a in along the lines of what you're describing in a clean way. I think the other aspects of consumption, um, uh, you know, need to be dealt with as part of civic education and as part of norm um, work. Because it is true that in many many societies, and again, including our own back in the day, you know, as you increase your your livelihoods, your income consumables are a very attractive way to to expend those those new resources. This feels like a high-class problem. <laughs> In most of the countries you know, we're talking about, I mean, I'm talking about working with small-scale farmers who are p- paying double this year for fertilizer than they were paying before Putin invaded Ukraine, who just need a little loan to be able to get access to some of those drought-resistant seeds that are gonna increase yields by 25%. But again, finding the resources to get them that, getting the private sector interested in adaptation, Um, but, you know, no question that we should be thinking now about, you know, if we can be successful, if we can help them withstand the negative effects of climate change and like here in America, grow jobs out of also uh, these changes uh, to their economies, then what? Then we will be grappling with the kinds of things that have further fueled emissions in in more recently developed countries.
1: As you've alluded to many times, there's a lot of good news related to Um, development of clean energy alternatives. That being said, though, global emissions once again hit a record high in 2022. Carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has risen to levels not seen in millions of years. Uh, Are we moving in the wrong direction despite glimmers of hope?
2: Well, I mean, I think all of us um, can answer that question in two ways. (laughs) And we talk to ourselves all day, you know, on the one hand this and on the other hand that. Um, but what, what we can say is we're certainly not moving fast enough. And, you know, what breaks my heart is you it's a little bit like another version of the vicious cycle you were kind of describing. But when you see the the wildfires and the rate of wildfires and then all of the carbon emitted and all of the good that had been done with carbon emission reductions, and that being not washed away, whatever, you know, uh, smoked away, burned away, um, that's heartbreaking, because these investments are accreting, they are building momentum. So I think that, and that's not the only thing that's heartbreaking, there's so much that's happening day to day, and, and a little bit of the despondency, I think, setting in as well as people... Just open the newspaper, and um, whether it's in their own community or one further afield, or even something like what happened in Libya, which just captures the imagination of, uh, which was its own sui generis issue with regard to governance and infrastructure, but was would not have happened that way but for the intensity of Storm Daniel, which is which is just being seen in so many communities. Um, but what I what I do think it's important to come back to, at least as proof of concept is that uh, at, in Paris, the projections, they were, we, we, the world were on a track to warm four degrees, and we are now on a track to warm 2.5 degrees. So that is a reflection of the agency that people have claimed over this trajectory. The problem is we need to curb warming at 1.5 degrees, but in that Delta from four to 2.5 should give people at least, uh, you know, a sense that actually collectively we are doing things that are making a difference. There's no doubt we are doing things that are making a difference. Um, If I could, though, I think the area that we we have, I mean, as as John Kerry likes to say, you know, if we don't get mitigation right and the carbon reductions right, um, there'll be no planet. To adapt, um, he he makes a comment like that a lot. We, we at USAID are in the mitigation and the adaptation business, as as is Secretary Kerry and his team. But I I think in mitigation, what's what I think gives one hope is just how much the private sector has leapt now, recognizing that there's money to be made. And and you know, I'd love to rely on people's good intentions and their feeling of fellow humanity but it's much more reliable to if they think there's money to be made. And that shift has occurred, and you see it on the IRA, which is already defying even the, the best projections and and extrapolations that people did. I mean, this is going to have way more collateral uh, effects and, and bring down carbon way more, I think, than, than people could have just strictly speaking anticipated because of a cascade now of private sector interest Fueled and catalyzed uh, by the underlying uh, legislation, and so too as the prices come down again, there's virtuous cycles there. Adaptation, we're not we're not there, and I don't know if we're 10 years behind where we were on on mitigation. You know where we are on mitigation. Like is the same thing going to happen in 10 years where we look back and say, oh, we lost all that time. Why couldn't private sector actors have seen as well that there's good to be done and money to be made, I guess, if, if you have to think that way, around insurance industry in the agricultural sector, um, in fintech? I mean, all these tools are going to be absolutely critical out in particularly rural areas and, and those areas that are most vulnerable to, to climate change. But about 2% of funding to adaptation comes from the private sector right now. And that has just got to change, so President Biden and we have done a big call to action to the private sector, um, but it's 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 slow going and and even if you take forget the specific sectors that have a direct nexus with uh, the need to to build resilience, look at it in even more stark terms, the market share that so many companies are hoping to capture are themselves going to have less money to spend, maybe in flight, maybe at war, um, you know. And so the positive of that is, hey, if we can help them adapt and, and be more resilient and where these uh, emergencies happen, but, uh, but don't wallop communities in the same way and they bounce back, uh, that's, those are consumers that will be our consumers. But the negative is what if, you know, millions, tens of millions of consumers are taken offline, uh, because they are driven into poverty. The predictions now are 100 million more people driven into extreme poverty by 2030. But that's within our hand, that adaptation. There's so much, as I would say to my kids, there's room to grow. <laughs> 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 you know, the, the areas that are the most troubling in some ways, uh, there's there's really room to grow. And, and you could see a cascade of the kind that we've seen on on carbon mitigation.
1: Minister Power, we have almost we got a minute and eight seconds, and and this will be the final question. I mean, the name of this conference is this is climate, women leading the charge. So, how do you see women reshaping climate leadership?
2: Well, first of all, I have the chance to make an announcement here in my one minute and eight seconds uh, that I have 53. left. Fifty-three. Uh, uh, <laughs> we. Um, we, USAID and Amazon, the company, not the forest, uh, launched uh, a gender equality fund, gender equity fund at COP. And uh, we launched it with $6 million in funding. And this is for women. It's for uh, projects that will benefit women. It's for projects that are driven by women in adaptation or in mitigation, the whole or the protection of natural ecosystems, but things broadly in the climate space. And uh, today, uh, we have the Visa Foundation and Reckitts, a, a company out of the United Kingdom, who have joined us and matched that initial, oh, USA put in $3 million, Amazon put in $3 million and, and have added uh, $6 million. Why do I mention this? not a huge amount of money yet? We are going to get up to $60 million, we hope, uh, in rapid order. This is part of another cascade that we would like to see. Um, We've put out a request for proposals, incredible women leaders are putting uh, proposals in. These can be small uh, projects, a lot of the climate finance right now is not going to small projects, it's going to big international organizations, so working more with local partners is going to be absolutely key. Um, But these are going to be the success stories that are going to inspire people uh, to invest more and to believe that change can come. And sadly, there are just not that many examples of climate finance facilities that are targeted and tailored toward women, even though women are bearing the greatest brunt. And women, I think, in my experience, are doing the most innovative work uh, in dealing with the consequences of climate change and try to to, uh, lower those consequences in the years ahead.
1: Samantha Power, the 19th administrator of USAID, thank you very much for joining us today.
0: Thanks, Jonathan. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
3: A long-time Washington correspondent, but I'm really excited to be here with you um, all in New York today. You know, achieving success in any enterprise, enterprise but particularly when it comes to climate change requires both inclusivity and partnerships. Now here with me today, representing a company that excels in both areas, is Tiffany Atwell. Tiffany is senior vice president of government relations at Ecolab. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you, Kathleen.
4: It's an honor to be on the stage with you.
3: Well, Tiffany, you know, we have been hearing such wonderful discussions already this afternoon, haven't we, from women who are taking uh, the lead on really reshaping climate leadership around the world, But what I find frustrating is that they are the exception, rather than the the rule. And what do you think it is? Why is there this lack um, of inclusive leadership and understanding that um, collaboration? You know that women need to have to be part of leadership on this issue.
4: Absolutely, well, I'm also frustrated, and and I'm very fortunate to work for a company that sees that women need to lead in this area, Uh, but I also look at uh, the lack of women leadership in this space as as something that reflects society everywhere. Um, I wish it were different, Uh, but I can't think of a cause that is more important to have women leading, and that's because when women lead by nature, Uh, we are inclusive. Uh, Our leadership style is to bring diverse stakeholders in the room. And so that's the importance of the event today. But but I'm hopeful that events like this and the way this room is filled with so so many amazing women. Uh, there, there are there men here as well, but I'm hopeful that this is and, and we love you and are amazing. And we, and we, and we too. want you they're and, we, want too. You and okay. we and we need you. Um, but I, I think that this could be that moment where people can not just reflect on the great work that we've heard of earlier today on on the panel, but really, how can we make sure that this is the future of fighting climate and and also, hopefully, using water as that tool of fighting climate change, which I I think that it's still really uh, not really known. What are the consequences when
3: you don't have a diverse group of of stakeholders uh, around the table when you're fighting climate
4: change? Well, I think um, it really is indicative of what we see today. I mean, because we haven't had a diverse group of stakeholders, and this is globally, and this, of of course, is um, women also leading. We haven't even talked about water um, because it's so critical, and most people don't understand that the first impact of climate change is water. But what they also don't realize is water is a tool to helping us fight climate change. And so I'm really proud, of course, to work for a company that understands that and has really helped me understand that. I've only been with the company two years, but I had no clue how powerful water was at solving some of these acute issues that we're facing right now with climate change.
3: You began your career at the State Department And you worked on the Hill for Senator Grassley. Um, You held positions of leadership at several major global corporations. And then you were also a woman in agriculture for seven years. And there I know you are guaranteed to have been in the minority. So you've got a lot of insight on this. What do you think, uh, what have you seen is really key to helping women uh, be accepted as an integral part of management teams?
4: I think that part of it is working and collaborating um, with other women as well. Uh, I I think that oftentimes we think that we can be the only in the room. Um, And I also think that previously it's been thought that once we have children or get married that we have to dial back. um, Because a lot of workplaces have not been very forward-leaning in accepting the full woman. Uh, and, and I think all of that is very important. And so I think that when people like me, and of course people like you, when we're in power, it's important for us to talk about these issues. Um, I'm very fortunate that I can talk about these issues with my CEO, he is uh, a big promoter of diversity, inclusion, and equity. And Your company's won awards, right? Absolutely, but I, I think awards are great, which is sometimes what happens, we rest on our laurels. Um, what I love about it, it's okay, We've we've done OK, but we need to do better. And, and so there is still room to grow. But I, I really feel like everyone in this chair, regardless of our title, has a role to play in, in making sure that there are more women uh, in leadership positions.
3: Senior Vice President of Government Relations at Ecolab, you are basically a liaison between the public and the private sectors, and I want to kind of segue now to talk about climate change. How do you think effective partnerships can play a role in really moving the ball
4: forward? Well, part of it is just based on my experience. I mean, when working in the government and you can see, of course, the power of the government, but you realize government cannot solve all of society's problems without civil society, NGOs, and other you know, business leaders, uh, we won't be able to deal and manage some of these uh, huge issues like climate change. And so I, I think that that's the key. Um, to making sure that we're inclusive um, when we're leading, and that's the power of public-private partnerships. And what I've seen just in my short time with Ecolab is their work through the Water Resilience Coalition, um, which we co-founded in 2020, um, is really an exciting example of what a public-private partnership can be. And while it's run out of the UN Global Compact, I mean, you have 32 other companies that... Uh, were initially involved, and I think we're up to 36 now. And they're really working to um, help preserve and restore water basins throughout the world. And so they've already tackled, um, I think in five countries, 18 water basins. And that's important because we don't think about it, but. You know there are a lot of other people in other countries which you've traveled um, quite a bit that don't have access to drinking water that don't have access to sanitation uh, and and so this is not our problem of today but it is the problem of today for many people um, outside of this room. and so I think that beyond it being a business imperative um, because you need water in every component of a business, whether it's producing a product, um, a new chip uh, that goes into your phone. While we don't realize that, um, there are so many aspects that are diverse stakeholders are involved that this is why we need that inclusivity. This is why we need diverse thought in solving these uh, types of problems.
3: Following through on on pledges, we all know it is vital to reaching net zero. Um, Have you seen a disconnect at all in the private sector between the pledges that are made and the actions that are taken?
4: Unfortunately, yes. And I think that's been probably a common theme um, uh, with all of the panelists. And so it's, I think it's a well-known fact. And, and just this morning, Ecolab, in celebration of uh, Climate Week, uh, we um, released our study, uh, the Ecolab uh, Watermark Study, that actually talks about society's views uh, on water and, and how they feel about water and it's the largest lab study that addresses this. But the importance of it is what society is saying. Uh, it was over 80% of society that feels like that business and government is not doing enough to solve the issues of water security. And and so that's more important, but it's also important because we need society to move government to want to do more about this. I mean, so public-private partnerships are great, um, but we need civil society that's pushing in this area. And what was interesting to me is just uh, 80% of Americans find this as a critical issue. Uh, Water security is a critical issue. Of course, we just heard from the mayor. Um, and she's doing great work, um, but it's it's not just in Salt Lake uh, City that's um, this is an issue. It really is
3: nationwide, yeah, and absolutely, as you said. throughout the United States. But moving the needle on climate change obviously requires working together, uh, people taking actions and collaborating in ways they may never have before in the past. Can you give us some effective partnerships or collaborations that you have seen that could be role models for other corporations?
4: Well, I do think that it's maybe a little bit easier for us because we understand that if our clients are successful, we we look at that's our success. But I think that's a model not just for us, but also even maybe for governments when they're looking at these types of issues. Uh, I would say when I think about like the Inflation Reduction Act, I mean, regardless of your views of it, it is a view of trying to push the private sector into building the green economy to deal with some of these climate issues. And actually water is a part of uh, that as a tool. And so I I think that that is one example. But I think the other example is um, really creative investment mechanisms. And so if you think about that woman in India who doesn't have access to um, water or she doesn't have access to sanitation. And there are now creative investment tools that can offer microfinance loans uh, to women. And from what I understand, there's a 94% payback rate of, of the loans. And so it's, it sounds like it's something that's just based on uplifting civil society. Um, but you also increase an employer's and employee's productivity if you don't have to go and, and walk miles to get clean drinking water, mm-hmm. uh, and also it's security and safety for women because oftentimes what will happen in some countries where women are not created, you know, or thought of as equal, is that there are rapes and other horrible things that happen to women when they go out to an outhouse or some other place where they don't have an in-house bathroom. Mm-hmm. So, I think that it impacts all of us, even if it's not in our our backyard. Sure. And and then water just is
3: so central to improving health Absolutely. globally when so many people do not have access to, to clean water. I mean, well, we know even here in the United States, Absolutely. Jackson, Mississippi, we have
4: Absolutely. In Flint, Michigan. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we live in Washington, D.C. Some (laughs) people say even in Washington, D.C., you know, we should be concerned. But I think the other um, aspect that I think about is when we think about um, EVs and we think about chips, all of those are water-intensive industries. And so we don't think about those are really... Uh, sustainable that's a sustainable future for us but we actually have to be sustainable and when we're trying to manufacture those products that's what you do right absolutely you you help them right well that's the exciting part of our partnership (laughs) and it's really cool to be able to do that
3: as we begin to wrap is there anything else you think that businesses should keep in mind when when building partnerships uh, to tackle the climate crisis
4: I think uh, being diverse and the stakeholders that you talk to, um, understanding that you don't have to have all of the answers. And that's one of the other beauties of having women lead. Um, We're very open to listening and, and not always needing to have all the answers. And these are issues that affect so many stakeholders that have the right to have a seat at the table. And I think that from what I've learned from not just the speakers today, but some of the other speakers and other panels, Uh, There are a lot of solutions that are already readily available. It's just scaling them. And it's it's just making sure that people are aware of them. And so hopefully that this can open up people's eyes that it doesn't have to be just viewed as a green tax to be sustainable. It can make your business more effective um, and and a greater value proposition. And from the, you know, Ecolab Watermark study, it can even help you with your customers, because that customer sentiment, um, they care now more than ever how you're manufacturing your products. Um, I would like to sort
3: of close with a a story from the heart from you because I know you came to Ecolab from all these fabulous other companies where you've worked and, again, uh, being part of the federal government as well and serving even around the world in Africa. I know you have. Why um, Ecolab, why is their cause and what they do so important to, to, to you, to the world? Help us understand that.
4: Well, I I think that, for me, we all have a choice, right? I feel like everyone in this audience has a superpower. Um, And it's really about tapping into that and working with people that can help your dreams come true. And I found that in Ecolab. They want to do good while actually making money. And I know that sounds blasphemous or maybe bad to some people, but I think that that's the only way that we can tackle Climate change If we actually have a model that goes beyond philanthropy, but instead is something uh, sustainable. Uh, And so that is my view. It's like that that happy marriage of all of my experiences um, because I love my public service, but to be able to join a company that really wants to do great stuff for the world, um, it's inspiring to me. And my t-shirt says, do more of what you love. (laughs) And that's what I'm doing and honored to do today. So thanks for um, asking.
3: Well, and I, I know people even, you can go, I think one of the cool things on your website is you can go and See the difference that the company's making every day. Uh, that ticker, it yes. takes off how many, is it billions yes. of gallons yes. of water you help uh, companies save. around the world save? Right. And that's helping save the planet. Absolutely. Right? Tell also us how that, how that works. What exactly?
4: Uh, so the Ecolab water monetizer is basically capturing all of the data from all of the work of our engineers that are on site for our customers that are doing great work. We're helping them do it, but they they are inspired and want to do the work, but it's, it's global. And so this is tracking 24 uh, seven because it's digital and it's you know run by the sensors in their uh, actual systems in their companies. And so it's real time Very cool. what we're saving every day. And there's a level of transparency to it that I think um, also helps you be more accountable. And sometimes I think that's what's missing. Uh, to a lot of the commitments that are made Um, so it could be a good model as to what we could do more of in that sense.
3: Excellent. Tiffany Atwell, Senior Vice President of Government Relations at Ecolab, thank you so much for
0: joining me. Well thank you for having Uh me. Thank 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 you all. And now back to Washington Post Live. I'm pleased to be joined by the Mayor of Salt Lake City, Aaron Mendenhall. Mayor Mendenhall, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Excellent. Uh, Since environmental issues spurred your entrance into politics, could you tell us the story of how you went from uh, air quality activist to the mayor of Salt Lake City?
5: Yes. Um, I think everybody has a moment that triggers you to decide you have to do something. And maybe you know that moment for yourself, how you started your career, you founded a nonprofit or something. And my moment was when my now 17 year old was an infant. He was uh, just a few weeks old. He was a fat nine pound, one ounce baby. <laughs> and I, um, I'd studied biology a little bit, but I in no way was an air quality anything. I didn't know anything. And he was born during an inversion. Salt Lake City is an amazing place for so many reasons. But it's in a bowl shaped valley with mountains on both sides. So we amass pollution, particle pollution, in the winter months and end up with a temperature inversion, sometimes for days or weeks during our winter. And the cumulative impact I learned while listening to a local NPR station holding my fat baby. Um, and I learned listening that my legislature, our state legislature that day, had just received a report that the cumulative impact of Breathing these, these uh, sometimes in the summer, sometimes in the winter, really a handful of days a year on one's life can take two years off of a person's longevity, just living in this valley. And I felt like I had to leave. Like we needed to get in the car before the radio show was over and be gone. But really before the show was over, I knew um, I was going to do something. And so I started by volunteering, learning from physicians and environmental health people who were also compelled to do something, and found some mentors. Eventually, I was hired for a little nonprofit that was just starting up. I was the first employee, and we were community organizers. I was activating, putting protests together, um, getting people to feel like I felt. But I knew I wanted to be inside the meetings, that we were outside protesting. And so we founded a new nonprofit that Uh, It's called Breathe Utah, it's still doing great work, but worked from a science realm to bring policy proposals forward to our supermajority Republican legislature that would finally start getting some wheels under them. And I found that I really liked that work, and eventually someone said, you should run for city council, and I laughed. (laughs) And and, and six or seven more asks, eventually I said yes. now I'm in my tenth year in city hall six years Good. as city council and my fourth year as mayor got it
0: and so if being a mother in many ways kind of drew you into politics how has that and being a woman shaped both your decision to run you mentioned it took a few asks to get you uh, to engage and also how you operate now that you're in office you say?
5: i've I've only ever been a woman so I can't you know I can't <laughs> give you the contrast but When I ran the first time in 2013, only 16% of all elected offices in my state were held by women. 16. That's pathetic. And at the time, um, our seven-member city council had one woman, and uh, our, our mayor at the time was a man, and she was the only woman who was retiring and okay. it was really what pushed me to finally say, I'm going to try this, I'm going to get into the race, was thinking about an all-male city council and a man as the mayor running our blue dot amazing city that needed more voices at the table. So it was that inequity in representation that was the final straw. And
0: have those numbers changed? We're about 25%,
5: 26% okay. of elected offices now okay. in the state. Okay
0: um and tackling climate change by definition um involves collective action right there's no way that individual countries or states or right. cities and or you know nations can do it um and and also consensus building so do you have thoughts on how you and some of the other women leaders you've met approach this somewhat differently compared to you know others or do you feel like there's no real distinction and 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 this is you know, this is an issue that other people, that everyone has been able to, you know, master what it means to address collectively.
5: I think that I find myself in rooms with many other women, or mostly other women, around most of the uh, the great challenges that we're facing globally, but at a community level as well. I'm talking about the environmental injustice that's on the west side of Salt Lake City, our formerly redlined neighborhoods. That are dealing with, you know, absentee issues at our public schools. They're dealing with lack of access to fresh food. We have uh, resident food organizers in our community, mostly women showing up there. Transit access, you know, a, a I-15 expansion proposal that UDOT is looking at right now. A lot of women show up, and why that is, um, I only know for myself.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: But. Uh, Certainly, we have allies, and it's not always only the women. Um, But I think that telling your story and the vulnerability of that personal reason, your own tipping point that that I told you at the beginning, isn't a gendered experience to tell. Um, You know, men and women can tell their stories alike. But I think that there's something compelling about the authenticity and the invitation Um, And I see women doing that in both the reason they're engaged, but also the inspiration to keep going on an issue that can be as exhausting and frustrating as climate change. Why are we still in this? Why are we showing up? Because there's tremendous hope and because there's a bunch of kick-ass women that you have on this panel today who are doing amazing work. And um, I think that that authenticity of working together being excited of showing the hope that there is and the reason that we keep doing it is something i see women doing more often than men um, which i'd love to see that change
0: and um salt lake city is booming obviously and i'm curious if you could both talk about why it's attracting kind of the investment and the jobs Mm -hmm. that we've seen in recent years and also what are the challenges the both the opportunities and the challenges that it presents when you're committed to conservation and environmental goals like like yourself
5: yeah utah is the fastest growing state in the nation about 18.4 percent growth um, 2010 to 2020 census and we've continued with that growth salt lake city has grown quite a bit we hovered around 180,000 residents in our little 110 square miles um, for decades And we've added about 20,000 residents in the last two decades. And interestingly enough, we've decreased our water consumption by more than 20% over that course of time. So the way that we're growing is, I think, something that other cities around the state of Utah, who are also experiencing growth challenges, are interested in Mm -hmm. because the costs associated, the livability of that. not only the environmental reasons, but the day-to-day quality of life. And our growth is very focused from a city aspect on um, the ways that we can leverage the private market to give us more of the solutions that we need. Housing costs are very difficult in Salt Lake City. Um, They've been escalating. Homelessness is a challenge that we see in capital cities, medium-sized cities across the country. We're experiencing that as well and the threats of the Great Salt Lake and its shrinkage and the dust, toxicity, um, and the way the wind blows is right into Salt Lake City. So these are challenges that we can address at the local level with things like land use, low interest rate loans that we give, and we will not loan any longer for new buildings unless they are all electric and they are climate friendly. So we need those kind of technologies, but of course we can't control the the building codes that's set by our state legislature. So we have to put our money on the table or change the land use codes uh, to get the solutions that we need. And the businesses are showing up, it's happening.
0: Is there any real prospect building codes, obviously, which is super wonky, but has significant implications for energy use for climate. Is there any prospect of that changing in the near future? Or is there just not enough support in the legislature for that?
5: There has been some incremental change. And just the way that we've been able to improve our air quality is the way that the building codes will also change, which is that the business case becomes very clear. Um, The technologies become actually more affordable than the traditional way of building. And so electricity and creating buildings that are 100% electrified um, is a good business model right now. And I think when the city, our blue dot leads out on some of these new policies, um, we do see the state both examine what's going on and then sometimes
0: implement at the state level. So we're happy to be that progressive testing ground it. Okay. And so let's talk about the Great Salt Lake, which um, first hit a record low in the summer of 2021. Um, and there was a story just today, right, in the Tribune saying that the record snowpack was a temporary re- reprieve, but basically for a couple years. So there's a coalition of environmental groups that recently filed a lawsuit against the state of Utah, arguing that officials have pushed the Great Salt Lake to the brink of collapse. Do you think that state officials are doing enough to protect the Great Salt Lake? and what else should they be doing?
5: The actions that they took in the last legislative session were phenomenal. And I don't believe that they believe they're done. We hear from them and we hear from the scientists who led the initial study that said, we have five years left uh, of this lake and then the ecosystem is gone. And the legislature responded. Um, We know that of all the water that could drain into the Great Salt Lake, more than 80% of it is going to mining or agriculture, majority going to agriculture, about 72%. Cities and local industries, about 9% total, and the Salt Lake City is a tiny bit in there, so influencing... The big mining industries and the agricultural aspect is a legislative function. I don't. I know there's been a lot of attention on Salt Lake City. It is our namesake. Yes. Right? But and we have been doing some pretty uh, aggressive policies, rate increases. Um, but to have farmers pass on that water, not grow their crops and not lose their water rights, but be able to receive some funding from the state is new and empowered by a $40 million trust they put together. We need this action to continue. And the reporting that you mentioned today is uh, based on the work of these same scientists that the legislature has been listening to. So what they suggest? We've seen it come to fruition in the legislative session, and we hope to see more of that in January. Okay,
0: and then part of what you you mentioned earlier is this idea that toxic chemicals, including arsenic, lead, and mercury, that mm-hmm. are right now trapped in the lake bed, as it becomes as the lake bed becomes more exposed, um, these chemicals are carried into the air and create toxic dust storms. Um, so, in terms of you you've talked about how Salt Lake has obviously taken some precautions, some steps to kind of reduce its water consumption is there anything that the city can do in terms of restoring it that you feel like is action that's important for salt lake city to do at this point
5: there's all there's been some other reporting Mm -hmm. around lithium extraction Mm -hmm. and this frenzy of businesses trying to figure out how to especially in the highly saline parts of the lake extract lithium from the brine that is in there and these are typically really water intensive processes Uh, More water than we use as an entire city, capital city in a year, uh, much, much more. And the pressures on cities like ours to be able to dedicate the outflow from our water treatment facility, which is just over 13 billion gallons of water a year. Mm -hmm. It flows into the Great Salt Lake, but it could be forced to be diverted. And so we are right now working to finalize our legal assurances with the state of Utah which Uh is only newly available to cities in the last two years Mm -hmm. so that we control and permanently dedicate all 13 billion gallons to the lake Mm -hmm. so that should a big um, semiconductor manufacturer or a lithium extractor plant come into the state and get them really excited about an industry that are what we can't afford from a water aspect it will be secured.
0: Got it. Well, let's talk specifically. You anticipated my next question, which is that um, the Washington Post has been doing a series this year about the implications of the expansion of electric vehicles and what it means in terms of, obviously, uh, the critical minerals and uh, components that go into that. And so lithium uh, you know, is something that really matters. And there's a proposal right now from Waterleaf Resources which says that it will restore billions of gallons of water that it's going to require from the Great Salt Lake. Uh, and the question is, Can it, will it, should should this uh, venture be permitted? What's your, do you have a position on that?
5: That's the question the state is asking right now. They've also acquired some natural water, rights, So not salty water from the lake, but uh, the non-saline water that we're taking from the tap. They're saying that they would put actually more water back into the lake than they take out because they'd be combining it with this fresh water that they flush the process with at the end. Um, We haven't heard from the Department of Natural Resources at the state whether or not this system, which is a very new and unpiloted, as far as we know, uh, process is actually going to be able to do that. So I'm grateful that the state is taking a skeptical look at an unvetted process that wants many billions of gallons of water out of the lake, many times more than our entire city uses. Um, we should be skeptical of this, and we should do nothing that harms the lake. Every economy, not just mineral extraction, every part of our city, the entire ski industry, everything would be affected if we lose the lake. There would be no Salt Lake City.
0: Um, and I'm curious about, you know we've seen a huge number of extreme weather events right, occur. Um, uh, across the across the country, across the globe. And I'm curious of whether how it's in what ways has it changed the kind of leadership playbook for mayors, for lack of a better term? Has it, you know, provided more opportunities to engage on climate change? Has it strained budgets to an extent that doesn't allow you to devote the resources you want to making progress on some of your goals? How how have you coped with this and what has it meant for you?
5: Salt Lake City being a historically democratic city Um, in our very red state has taken every opportunity to come to the table anytime we're invited or anytime we see a conversation that we feel like we should be in, we find a way to pull a chair up. And the lake and the crisis of the lake has expanded those opportunities and it's caused other cities, other mayors in the state to look at what we've been doing and what we're developing in terms of our policy, even our rate structure of increasing over time Um, And they're asking us, how how can we do that? Can you help? Can you share that with us? Um, And at the state level, we are helping to develop the water budget for the Great Salt Lake through our public utilities director, Laura Briefer, who's amazing, not only at directing the public utilities of Salt Lake City, but telling the story and the history of water's relationship to the settlement of our valley. And Although agriculture is the main source here, and that is not part of what's happening in Salt Lake City, Mm -hmm. I think that the relationship that Utahns have with the Great Salt Lake has taken a massive turn. People didn't value the lake very much. It can smell funky when the wind blows off of it. You don't take your ski boat out, and you don't take your family to the beach and play at the Great Salt Lake. It's a very salty body of water, and it smells funky sometimes. But now we all love the lake in the last two years because I think that we, we kind of recognize the lack of appreciation and now it's over, we're overcompensating it. with care and concern. And other cities are, are grateful, I think, to turn to what we've proven out already in Salt Lake.
0: And do people think about and talk about water differently now? Again, yeah. this past year was, was quirky in terms of obviously what we saw in terms of the snowpack and rainfall. But obviously Right before that, we were at this unbelievable crisis point. And did, is that also part of how people are thinking slightly differently?
5: Yeah, I was really concerned this winter with the epic snowfall rates mm-hmm. that we had, um, that people were going to lose their concern about the lake. Mm-hmm. And its I think everyone seemed to have that same worry. Um, it's not the case. Yellow is the new green in Salt Lake. Um, people are xeriscaping. We are planting more trees at the same time. Um, to help reduce our heat island effect, and uh, people people are very inspired.
0: Um, and while there are fewer Americans who, you know, for example, deny how human activity is helping drive climate change, the issue, both in terms of the causes and and the solutions, is still polarizing, and the two parties remain pretty far apart. And we've seen that in recent polling that the Washington Post has done, and obviously others. How, obviously, you've spent time trying to diffuse that level of polarization um, as a Democratic mayor in a, in a Republican-dominated state. How, how do you go about doing that?
5: I live in the Southwest, the area of the United States most affected by climate change. And it is undeniable that we've been experiencing um, incredible impacts already from climate change extreme weather events, the drought that we have been in and we continue even despite our epic winter, um, the crisis of the lake. uh, This is, it's reaching undeniable proportions. Now, what has to happen with climate change is very acute to Utahns. Um, From an air quality perspective, we're already primed to care very much at the local level about carbon emissions and the impacts on our health. But with that that coupling with the lake and the crisis of the lake has made the climate struggle very personal. Um, and in, I think that we see this, the water crisis playing out in all parts of the West. But the lake is, we're talking about months for us to take action, not decades, not 2030. The lake will be gone if we haven't made the decisions by twenty thirty, when we are trying to meet our carbon goals,
0: and so how do you hear Republicans in your state talking about climate change that might be different from what people would hear from national Republicans or you know the most recent you know Republican presidential debate?
5: I think that our our Utah Republicans talk about it in terms of our livability and pres- uh, preserving our quality of life. They. Mm-hmm recognize the majority of our our legislature are rural representatives. And agriculture and mining and industry is a big part of those economies. They want to be able to preserve their communities, but they recognize that the resources that they've relied on are dwindling. And um, th- this isn't about climate change. You don't hear a lot of Utah Republicans talking about climate change. But they'll talk about the Great Salt Lake and the water crisis. And, you know, if in the end, the actions that we take to save our lake are ca- characterized as, as local um, and have nothing to do with climate change from the rhetoric coming out of the legislature, I'm okay with that. We still have to take the action.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you. This has been fascinating. Mayor Mendenhall, we will be watching to see what happens in Salt Lake City and in Utah. Thanks so much for joining us here today.
5: Thanks for having me, Julia.